Bandwidth for the Weird Things podcast provided by Wired Tree. For sites of any size and world-class customer service, head on over to wiredtree.com. Hello and welcome to the Weird Things podcast. I'm Andrew Maine, joined by Mr. Justin Robert Young. Hey. And uh, we are Bryceless, which is frankly, I'm a little bit anxious right now. It's like, you know, hey, we're going to go skydiving. Right, we're going to use parachutes. We'll see what happens. And uh, we're Brianless. And oh, yeah, Brian's not here to skydive with us without parachutes. So it makes it even more nerve wracking. Yeah, it's literally but, just us. But what we do have here in the Burbank studio, Mr. Jonathan Madajan. Hi. Now, you're like, you've heard Jonathan mentioned before. You've heard some talk about Jonathan, but who is Jonathan? Jonathan is the lab coordinator for the Experimental Cosmology Lab at the University of Santa Barbara. University, excuse me, University of California, Santa Barbara, which uh, over that's Dr. Phil Lubin's lab. Phil Lubin is the guy that developed uh, pioneering work in laser propulsion also doing really cool stuff for doing uh, space cosmology mapping, all sorts of space cosmology, a little thing I made up there. Uh, he's got exciting projects using, you know, uh, special telescopes to measure the, do a foreground map of the universe so you could get a more accurate background map. A lot of cool stuff. So Jonathan is there helping coordinate this stuff and facilitating this. So the laser propulsion, remember we've talked about this before, the idea of using lasers to propel small little spacecraft that are maybe a few centimeters across to relativistic speeds, 20%, 30% the speed of light. So you could go to, you could send probes and stuff to Alpha Centauri within a less time that it'll take to conceive and launch a James Webb Space Telescope. Gotcha. So some of what he's been working on. So Jonathan, is that kind of an accurate description? Yep, that's no. about it. I yeah. mean, first time I met you, I, I was explaining this stuff to you and this this guy knew what I was talking about. It turns out he read Phil's paper, which like no one in our lab has even attempted to do because it's like sixty plus pages. <laughs> well, he I and I talked about it on Weird Things years ago because I, I've come across it and I'm always you know interested in you know interest exotic or crazy ideas for you know space travel exploration things like that. And I came across a talk he gave. I said, man, this is fascinating. So I got the paper, I read the paper, and I tried to explain part of it here on Weird Things several years ago. And then it was maybe a year or two later, and then, then Project Starship, Starshot came along like a year later or something like that. And I'm like, well, it looks a lot like Phil's work here. you know. And then I found out Phil was a consultant on that and all that, but it looked like, in my opinion, they borrowed a lot of Phil's work. Um, and then uh, you know, when I met you, we were actually doing a tour of XPRIZE and then SpaceX and started talking. And then I'm like, oh, yes, I know exactly what you guys are doing. I've read the paper. So it's very cool. And so I've been hanging out ever since. Awesome. Uh, well, uh, I'll tell you what, do we want to go more into, into, into the work that, uh, Jonathan has done or are there, uh, uh, news stories that we yeah. want to tackle? Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Like, I mean, it, the lab that he works at is a really, really exciting place where you see it is unlike anything else in the world, because in one, in one part of it, Phil's lab, they have, uh, they're working on literally, you can see prototypes of tiny little spacecraft that are just a few centimeters across that Nick is, you know, you know, yep. building where they're doing specialty like castings and stuff to make these things and the etch and whatever. Then you go into the pit, which is where you see this humongous aluminum frame that's going to be put inside of a cargo container. Tell them about the Greenland project. <clears throat> so Greenland is looking at, all right. So in the early universe, uh, the light rays are really far away, which means that you can look back in time by looking really far in space, so longer distances. Um, but what happens is over those distances, the light gets shifted um, from being infrared to radio. So we had to build a radio telescope to make these measurements of the early universe. The problem was when we put this telescope on top of the physics building, it picked up all the local radio stations. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, to get around this problem, they decided that they would do a mission in Greenland where there will be no problems with radio because oh, there's wow. nothing in the middle of Greenland. <laughs> um, and so 
the goal was we've got to take this telescope, build it, fit it in a shipping container, fly it on an airplane to Greenland. And there's a lot of considerations with that. Like you need to make sure it can resist the cold, the vibrations of the flight, all that sort of stuff. So our lab has been working on the engineering of actually constructing this thing and we just shipped it out. So that was really exciting. Uh, uh, how long it's, of a process was it to, to get it to the point where you shipped it out? Um, that's a bit complicated because it's been through multiple iterations. So, you know, we've done a balloon mission where they flew two of them side by side. And then there was another one where they put it on the roof of the building. Uh, but I'd say this last iteration has been a um, little like one, two years. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Uh that is that is the that, that is that is fantastic, and so uh, it is now en route to Greenland. Yep. So first stop is New York, and then New York to Greenland. Uh, How long before we start seeing results from that? Um, I think the plan is to collect data over the course of the summer. They only fly out there during the summer, so they're going to have to come back in August, and then they'll probably do like initial uh, data analysis at that point. So all right, let's talk about to you. The laser propulsion part. Okay, what what is the the lab tour explanation of that and how you describe what that is? Okay, so <clears throat> the roots of our lab were experimental cosmology, which is studying the early universe. But Phil got interested in laser technology when he started looking into planetary defense and asteroids and that. Stuff. Oh, that's all. I looked that. Up. Oh, yeah, they're they're trying to protect us from asteroids. The, the, gotcha. How to destroy asteroids there too. So that that was that was that was the the, the very beginning of the laser fascination was about trying to either deflect or or destroy asteroids correct gotcha yeah and, and if you like we, we can uh talk about that too but, which is, which uh, is literally laser- the thing that you would think the most about the uh, lasers in space right is shooting them at <laughs> things that we want gone <laughs> right okay um so the the asteroid stuff phil's first idea is like well we'll just build a big laser and blow it up um, a great, great first idea. <laughs> great, we should all start there. Um, and so, well, then he started looking at the physics and the math of it. And you need a whopping big laser if you're going to actually just completely annihilate the asteroid. So that that's he started looking into this other idea, which is if you could shoot the laser, if you there could shoot the laser at the asteroid, you can create a hot spot on the surface, and then that hot spot will start ejecting material this way. And if stuff's shooting out this way, physics says the asteroid will go the other way. And you can actually deflect the asteroid using this phenomenon. Gotcha. Uh, and yep. so, so that, yeah, that, that was, I, I think we've, we, we might've even talked about this on, on weird things before, but, but that idea of, of asteroid deflection is something that has uh, been very exciting for a long time. Yeah. I, I've been pushing towards the idea of like, okay, if you can push them and you can heat them, how about starting to shape them and weld them? <laughs> so that's about the time that I gave Andrew a lab tour and we big mistake. <laughs> yeah. Big mistake. So he, he's gotten to see the innards of the lab. Oh yeah. They, they will do stuff where the test, like to test this laser, like the deflection and stuff, they will do stuff where they'll have a is it basalt is what it is. Yeah. So they use their analog for an asteroid, they use a piece of basalt rock. They'll zap it with the laser and you watch it and you see how much it, how much it gives off. And there's a great video. One of the other people works in the lab where they're actually showing how much you could actually yeah. energy you can impart off of that, right? So, yeah. So, we've got this chamber in the lab that allows us to simulate the conditions of space. It basically provides a vacuum. And what we're able to do is we actually have um, little, little rocks and we put them in the chamber, shoot lasers at them, and we're able to watch them move around. And from that, we can extrapolate, well, how would this work on a larger scale? Oh man, that's crazy! And so, so that was the initial entry point for for the for the laser uh, study. But now you guys are focusing yes. on something else. So then, what happened is um, Phil realized, like, well, not too many people are interested in like planetary defense. It's kind of a niche community. Like, what other things could we do with a giant space laser? Sure. <laughs> So, that's a good question to ask. But also, like that—that that so, is a very funny way to put it. There's not too many people focused on it, which is odd because it would be something that would affect everybody. But you're right. It's like, aside from people with gigantic budgets, aka governments or eccentric evil billionaires, there's not a lot of uh, people that are like, "Oh, good, a gigantic space cannon." Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so we looked into like uh, being able to do remote composition of the asteroids. So you can use a laser 
um, and this technology called spectroscopy to figure out what the asteroid's actually made of, which could be useful for like mining and knowing what's about to destroy the planet. I mean, that could be kind of useful. Um, <laughs> We're going to be killed, but it'll be gold. Big gold nugget's going to kill us. Don't, we're all going to be rich. And then we're going to die. Um, so, but then um, there's this concept of laser sailing. And this is the other application that we look, that Phil looked into, which is um, light has no mass, but it still has momentum. And what that means is that you can take a mirror and if a photon of light comes in, it can actually impart momentum to that surface. And this is actually happening right now with our studio lights. All of those photons are coming and hitting us and crushing us down, and it's really heavy. But this force <laughs> is so small that you can't really um, experience – you don't experience it yourself, but it's still measurable. And we've been able to measure this force in the lab using the exact same setup we use for the asteroid. We just set up a little mirror inside of our chamber and we shoot it with a laser and we can actually observe the mirror getting pushed out. Oh, now, wow. a misconception. Remember the little thing you see at like the, the museum stores, the the thing that has the little black and white thing, the veins that spin? That's not the effect. That's a completely different effect. That's actually the, the small amount of gas particles and they're heating up on the black side. And I've, I've seen that in explanations like, oh, it's like this. It's like, actually, no, it's a totally different thing. So, yeah. And we, we have one of those in the lab and it's fun to just like show people like, look, you can move stuff with the laser, but... Yeah, it's a thermal effect, and it's completely no, different from it. Totally wrong. Yeah. yeah, I've been in. Boom, got him. I I was at a at a at a, one of the Hyperloop uh, demos, and they showed uh, where you drop the magnet through the steel tube, and it does this sort of like glide through there. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, they're like, and they're like, you can see this how it slides through there, and it doesn't hit the surfaces. I'm like, are you guys going to be using induction for this? No, I'm like. Then so what, it's just a then cool what? little thing to show people. Well, yep. I'm like, well, yeah. Yep. I'm like, yep. okay, all right. Uh, because that was like, that was the, I watched them hand it around to you know, some engineers. Like, oh, cool, cool, cool. And I'm like, I'm like one second. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, but that, 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 that's not the point. That's not what they're doing. But also it's like, whatever. It, it just gives people right. an entry point. And, and, that, it, and yeah. that's the one half to science is like, you do need to have good PR. Like you can have great ideas, but if you mm. can't share them and get people excited about it, it, it's just a good idea sitting on a shelf. Yeah. So that so you said that the you just explained how that how uh, photons have momentum they can impart that on there. So give us an example of what this setup is. Also, you talk about the laser because the idea it used to be like we'll build a big laser, but that's not really the way that it would work. Mm -hmm. So okay, about the laser. Um, so Phil did not invent this idea of laser sailing. It's actually been around for a long time. It's uh, fiction and things like that. What's changed is that because of the telecom industry and um, like a lot of innovations that have been going on in the field of laser technology, fiber optics, fiber optics yeah. and things like that, the amount of power you can, uh, laser power you can fit in a small package has grown exponentially. Like electronics have followed Moore's law, lasers have been following like an exponential type of uh, growth in their performance. And so, Phil realized like, wow, this technology is at the point where this is now becoming like a reasonable thing to think about. Um, you want me to talk about the phase array? Yes, yes, okay. yeah, good, yeah. Okay, so one of the limitations of just making one big laser and trying to fire that is that there's something called divergence. So if you've seen a flashlight, normally a flashlight, you have this beam and it like goes out like this. And the problem is if you're shooting this thing out into, yeah, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> if you're shooting this thing out into space and you've got this laser that's doing this, you're going to have very little power on a tiny, um, on a tiny satellite um, if you've got this beam being spread out like that. So lasers, you get a bit of an improvement. You've got a smaller beam angle, but it's still bad enough that you won't be able to hit something at, let's say, Alpha Centauri. Um, so there's this concept of... Uh, phased array technology, which is basically light, laser light um, is light, is a wave. And what you can do is if you have two lasers and those waves are going together, they will actually sum up. If the lasers are set up so that the waves are going opposite directions, they will cancel out. And you can use this property to make the lasers cancel out and combine in such a way that you actually get one tiny hot spot. It's really small instead of like a wide uh, beam. 
Oh wow! And and do the the magic of quantum physics. That hotspot has all the energy that you would have had from them emerging. Yeah. Right? So the, the what he's talking about is amazing. And I looked at like sort of an example where you're talking about the problem, like the scale. Explain the scale of the space, right? How big this would be. Okay. So let's just put it this way: bigger is better. Um, if we could build a laser the size of Texas, that would be excellent. You get better performance. You can go farther distances. You can do them faster. It's everything. All better. right. You um, sold me. Let's go. <laughs> and, and when he says, all right, you mean, so it's like an array of like hundreds of thousands so, of small. So, yeah. So I mentioned, I mentioned two lasers that are, you know, working together, right? Um, the, that would only give you, um, like very limited control. So what you would want is at least three because three allows you to perform this, um, in a 2D space. So, you know, with two lasers, you can really only get that hotspot somewhere along this axis. With three lasers, you can now put that hotspot anywhere in 2D space. Um, but then if you want to scale this up in power, you're going to need a lot more laser elements. So the idea is like, well, instead of building one gigawatt laser, we'll just have, you know, a million kilowatt lasers, something along those lines. And that was was interesting about Phil's paper was it was based upon the idea if you used what was basically existing commercial grade laser systems and pumps, what you could do with that. That was the neat thing about it. Wasn't like now we've got to invite, invent this new laser system. Yeah. We took the things, the lasers we were using now, but we have a thousand of these suckers or whatever that we're going to need to be able to do this. And we had a power source. Um, the trick now is trying to get them all to fire in the right timing right yeah so yeah the the glorious thing about this whole project is that it doesn't require any miracles so it's all like existing stuff the trick is um it's scaling it up the economics of that and the politics mm -hmm. so those are really the three impediments the technology is not really limiting us um so what we're doing in the lab right now is doing um tech demonstrations so we're working on like well you know, how can we make um, a laser that's one foot away from our source be exactly in tune with another laser that's a kilometer away? Um, gotcha. And that, yeah. And so that takes a lot of electronics and processing because everything has to be done simultaneously in fractions of a second because you're dealing with um, time scales that are nanoseconds. So, with so you, you're, you're trying to figure out timing and accuracy on, on the array, that, that everything yeah. is going to hit the, the exact spot that it needs to at the exact time that it needs to. Yeah, that's one of the problems that we're looking at, yes. With, with this technology, with this scaling up from here, and it's not like, and then we have to invent, you know, the dark energy laser, and, and nothing like that at all. It is like, it's, 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 it's a matter of, and Moore's Law will make it cheaper. We'll make it cheaper in potential. You know, they'd likely to do it and cheaper access to space if you want to build a massive array that would cover like the area of Texas. You could do this in space or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd asked Phil just like, hey, like what's because like in the paper it mentioned something like 30 percent C mm -hmm. for that. I'm like, well, what's the real upper limit from this? Because like I didn't see any reason why there was a limitation there. He's like, there isn't. Because I just pegged, put a number there to say we get 30 percent the speed of light. Yeah. So that, that's why when you ask like how big a laser, it's like, well. You know, you could build one in your backyard and you'd get, you wouldn't be able to launch anything with that. But when you start, the bigger you get, the better performance you'd get. And we're, uh, the Breakthrough Starshot program, which is Yuri Milner's uh, funded program, is looking at building a giant laser in the middle of the desert somewhere. Uh, NASA is interested in building one on space. And then there's this kind of fringe group that's like, well, if you build it in space, someone might try and zap humans on Earth. So let's build it on the dark side of the moon. <laughs> where yeah. no one can aim it down at her. That's, I'll tell you what, that's a group that knows how to party. The fringe group in the <laughs> space laser game. Yeah. <laughs> and that, the ultimate, uh, uh, the ultimate play on the uh, dark side of the moon and Pink Exactly. Floyd. Yeah, so, no, you know, finally, yeah. That, the, the final Pink Floyd laser light show. Yeah, the, the, um, the, the final Pokemon evolution of uh, the stoner <laughs> classic, the Pink Floyd laser light show. But once once you have, if you follow Moore's law for eight, for the, the amount of energy you're able to get out of a laser, and also there is there is the there's a trajectory for energy production. So you look at like ten years ago, the idea of like you know a, a, a gigawatt battery facility sounded inconceivable. Now you look at what Tesla is doing when they install battery facilities there. Now for this, you would need some sort of supercapacitor or something like that to put it out all at once, or would 
So one of the interesting things is that Phil has figured out is that in the power you need is if you could have a solar array the same size as the laser array, it would actually be able to provide you enough power. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Oh, crazy. So base, uh, uh, effectively what you are pushing, if it needed power, you would be able to provide it with the laser itself. During the day. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, but, but actually, yeah, I guess, I guess that's a thing too. Cause if you made your, each laser unit also, like if you made each one more modular then yeah, you don't need the massive bank to do it. Oh, that, I am glad you guys are on this. This is great. Yeah. Um, so what's, what's neat about it is the scalability of this is right now the proposals are like, Hey, we're going to try to make a little wafer, one thin wafer and have like a, like a one meter and trying to figure out like the shape of the mirror and how that's going to be, because it's, it's so much energy is hitting it. You can't have a defect on it because one little speck of sand in there becomes super hot and burns and explodes and destroys everything. That is, the, there's a lot of challenges they have to solve there because the amount of energy hitting that point, if it's not being reflected back at close to as hundred percent as you possibly can, you've got, you got a, you got a problem. Yeah. So that's one of the challenges of solving. But once you start to work on these things, you can scale this thing up. You could build something the size of a minivan and put a person in there and you could get to Mars in a couple hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it would really transform the way we do space travel because you no longer need these, you know, giant exploding packets of rocket fuel strapped to everything we send into space. You literally just need a mirror on your back and you can just go shooting off. And so we can send mission after mission after mission because, you know, it just requires you to charge the laser array and then you can shoot it off again. Well, let's let's talk about that for a moment, okay? Because most of the, the paper talks about, for the most part, like in space, how to take something that's already an LEO or something like there and to, and to kick that out into, you know, relativistic speeds. There is work in the lab about how to use this to reach orbit or to reach, you know, to go from launch. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so that becomes a really complicated problem because um, I, I explained this idea of the lasers adding up. Um, that is easier to do in what we call the far field. So when you're really far away from the laser source, the math simplifies and it's easier to do. When you're talking about near field, so very close to the array, the math gets really complicated. And so um, some of the more abstract physics-y math projects we're working on deal with how you construct the array in the near field. So what would you, what would a, an earth to space thing conceive of? Maybe look at like, also I know you guys talked about just using water in. Yeah, there was an idea of, you know, heating up a water tank. Mm -hmm. um, there was a researcher who did his uh, senior thesis project on that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's, give us, give us an idea of what, what would we look, be looking at if we were to look at something, a laser propulsion system to go to reach space? I mean, it's the same laser array. I mean, it's nothing really different. You're just repurposing it. So where would I put my spacecraft? How would I, where would it be? A kilometer above, you know, like being suspended above or what? Um, that kind of depends on how the math ends up working out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you might be able to launch from, you know, maybe 100 meters above or something like that. We'll see. So there would That's be, the, yeah, there would have to be something suspended or, or floating or, or, you know, above for this to when, when the laser array yeah. hits it, then you are, are fired up into the cosmos. Would you be able to put humans on this? Cause how fast is this thing going? Okay, yeah. Cause that's so, right If we can, we can take two steps back before we get back into, in, into this thing, because part of what I had always wrapped my head around this solution was that the, the, the pitch is all right. Once you're in like low earth or orbit, that a laser is cheap and takes advantage of space in a way that, uh, uh, you know, you use with fuel to propel yourself. You can have the momentum kind of, uh, uh, you continue to gain momentum. So if you had something that could do that far cheaper, that wouldn't require you to take that weight up uh, uh, into orbit to begin mm -hmm. with, uh, that now we're talking about, uh, a, a lot quicker transportation until now I hadn't really uh, uh, heard except maybe to have Andrew, you know, tell me uh, offhand, the idea of getting up into space with this does seem like almost a totally different problem, right? Yeah. And I'd say let, let's keep it in that category. It's still a unsolved problem. Yeah. Uh, Cause you have, you have the physics of 
when you're in space, it's lasers and vacuum. If you're doing ground-based, you got to figure out how the atmosphere interferes with the laser, yeah. the, you know, the interference patterns. But when you're doing from the ground, it's not just the same thing. You also got lots of nitrogen, some oxygen, and everything else that's going to be heated up when you do it, which can be an advantage because now you've got this. And there have been there have been experiments using ground-based lasers hitting the underside of objects to try to see if you could use that form of propulsion. And you get into and you kind of gotten to like, well, if we make it ablative, we could the underside could be a fuel source, but it's like, well, why not just use a fuel source then? But if you can get into like a pure electric energy one that does it, it just heats the available atmosphere underneath it, then that, but that's a, yeah, it's a separate problem. So just now that we know that, now that we feel that like, I mean, access to space has gotten much cheaper since when, when Phil first started this. Yeah. yeah, that's happening. And then you got Blue Origin and, Here's here's a funny thing to think about is Yuri Milner's put money into Project Starshot, which is, you know, one iteration of this concept. Jeff Bezos, who is Blue Origin, Blue Origin is working on their own fully reusable LEO and beyond uh, spacecraft. And Blue Origins, you know, they're going to start selling tickets next year for launches to space. Blue Origin is very serious. Jeff Bezos is very, very serious about Blue, you know, about there. And they're gaining momentum where SpaceX has gone out there and done some amazing things early on and certainly taken the lead. Nobody's discounting Blue Origin at all because Blue Origin has brilliant engineers. They're pushing their own thing. They're making their own engines. They're building their yeah. own great technology. And, you know, Jeff Bezos is very – it is his – when you ask him about his passion projects, it's the number one thing. And I don't know if you heard this now. He is now the richest man in the world. He's worth $140 billion. That'll okay? help. That'll help. Yeah. Yeah, he has got like the imagery is like he's got like like a like hundred billion dollars more than like Buffett, like forty million more than Gates. He's an exceptionally wealthy individual who is obsessed with space. He wants his legacy, is said he wants his legacy to be millions of people living and working in space. A project like this or something like this, when you're talking about that scale economically of somebody who is who is making billions of dollars off the interest alone of what he's making, not counting whatever the Amazon sort of thing is doing. If all of a sudden he decides he wants to get into this and you have a problem that doesn't need new physics, it doesn't need new technology, it needs technologies of scale, crazy things may happen. I haven't heard anything about him getting into this area of this, but it would not surprise me at all to find out that this is something that he's looking into at some point, you know, for the, the advanced, the advanced, you know, the next I mean, level. Yeah, dude, this is a very exciting field because from my perspective, it, it seems like, a, the more you can get up there, the more you are in the market for, all right, well, let's, now that it's up there, let's move it in the cheapest way possible or build a business based on uh, things that you can move with laser propulsion. Right. And, and, and that is something we've considered is like, you know, bumping something from low Earth orbit to, you know, uh, lunar orbit or some, some other uh, trajectory like uh, geo, geosynchronous Earth orbit, um, that is in a market that a lot of people are willing to pay for because, you know, it takes a lot of rocket fuel to go from one to the other. Yeah. Now we'll, we'll address some other aspects of the physics, but first the harsh reality of putting anything to orbit or putting anything on air. Yeah. Like a show like this. And that is patreon.com slash weird things. Of course you can head on over to patreon.com slash weird things and support us. Not only do you get uh, the satisfaction, you know, the, the hard-earned satisfaction about supporting independent media and these kinds of conversations and our ability to bring on fantastic guests like Jordan, but also you get After Things. That is the podcast that we do, After Weird Things, where we focus on creativity and entrepreneurship and making your dreams happen. All the tools you need to do it, the experience of people who have done it, that is yours to be had on the After Things podcast that you can get as part of a custom RSS feed if you become a patron today. Patreon.com slash weird things is where you need to be. So one of the one of the challenges is so we have our we have let's say an array, an orbit, whatever, we can push things, we can send things through, we're pushing people towards Mars. How are we gonna slow down? Excellent question. I uh, get that a lot. And the answer is, for the first generation, you won't. No. You will just do a flyby. You get to take your pictures and collect your data as you zoom by Mars, and that, that'll be it. You're, and you're off into space. It is, yeah. It's a one-way mission. <laughs> one-way one ticket. <laughs> um, which will actually be incredibly useful because we've 
you know, we've only recently left our solar system, but we've never sent anything to another star. And just exploring what another solar system looks like up close will provide data that is invaluable to scientists and will help set up future missions to, um, to other solar systems. And so part of what we're looking at is like, well, let's try sending out a spacecraft that will collect data. We'll bring some um, little critters, little life on board to see if they can survive living in another solar system. Um, and then if we're looking at breaking and stopping this spacecraft, what we would do is we would first send out an array of lasers pointed back at Earth. And so you'd send like this first uh, system and then you'd send out your second wave of little uh, spacecraft that will actually be collecting the measurement data. Point being that because of the scalability of this system, uh, space missions will require an entirely new paradigm. One of sending out many, many, many small things rather than these large, colossal, multi-million, billion-dollar missions. Now, if you read the paper, what he talks about the length of time, because the, the, there's only a, a certain window which, if you're sending an object, let's say, to Tizit, to Alpha Centauri, it's like like a minute or two minutes or something like that before it's completely out of range, right? So you get about two minutes or something? or um, Acceleration time is about 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Um, but, well, okay, I should rephrase that. Acceleration time under the base case described in the paper is 10 minutes. Yeah, got it, yeah. Like, you, you can build bigger laser, you get better performance, et cetera. Well, because part of it is, is that means is that every 10 minutes you could be launching another object, and that's what you're seeing, like John has pointed. It's not just, it's not just we, hey, guys, we sent off our one little probe, let's go home. It's like, foom, foom. Well, you keep that's the sound they make. You keep dropping it, you keep sending more and more of these, so you do a mesh, just a probe mesh to there. And then like he talked about the idea of like building that, that's the neat idea, is that like if if each one of your arrays is just is if it's millions of these tiny, you know, things that are, you know, this big that yeah. have control thrusters and whatever like this that can then aim back, is you send all of these towards, let's say you want to go Alpha Centauri, you send them towards there, and so you can send objects to there slow it down and then put you take you expend one array going over there aiming backwards and then you send your next array to be slowed down and be put into orbit by that first array and then that, that first array just goes on and does whatever and that the, finally you have that second array is now in orbit around that star system or the planet or whatever you want and now you've got a two-way transit you can go back and forth so this is this just, is an interesting idea because what when when you're talking about like like we haven't seen another star right we haven't sent a probe to another star we haven't explored it in a way that we you know would like to part of what I would guess the resource problems are it's expensive so you have to have a lot of discussion as to what we're going to do and who's going to do it and how much it's going to cost those are decisions that take many many years so oftentimes as we found with like the Mars rover which was a tremendous achievement but then like you look at the specs on that and it's and it's something where you're like oh wow like it has less power than an iphone right uh, <laughs> uh because it had to be built you know so long ago and and the decisions were made long before that but also if something goes wrong if there's some mistake if there's some you know calculation that doesn't happen then mm -hmm. it's done uh, you you got you got effectively you've literally put all your eggs into one basket where if it is cheaper and more frequent, then you have a higher possibility for something going wrong. All right, John, you want to explain, we've had this question come up a couple of times in the chat thread of let's say this is one of our pieces of array, and they're like, why not just use normal thrusters to slow it down? Okay, um, so Phil has this excellent graph um, in his paper, and it describes the various types of propulsion technologies that we have today versus the size of the object. And the trouble is we have sort of like standard acceleration techniques that involve like rocket propulsion and things like that for relatively large objects. And then we have um, extremely high accelerations for really, really um, tiny objects like, you know, particle accelerators that are accelerating electrons and protons and all that kind of stuff. Gold like, atoms. Gold, yeah. So like we can accelerate small things really, really fast and we can do like big things pretty fast. Um, but laser technology and the type that we're describing here lives somewhere in the middle where we can accelerate medium-sized objects very close to the speed of light. Um, and so you can't – it's just a matter of like you're in the wrong regime. It's like bringing a, a bicycle to a car race. It's just not going to 
It's not going to work well for you. From an energy point of view, the amount of energy that is that this object has, if this was one of our little mini, you know, this was the, the probe or it's got a laser on it, it's this, the part of the mesh array, this is the object, let's say it's this size, mm -hmm. the amount of energy this object has as it approaches towards Alpha Centauri, if, if you're using a chemical fuel to try to slow it down, you're going to need something the size of like an Olympic swimming pool or something like this. There's just not enough the amount of fuel it takes because these things are moving. Mm -hmm. When you're going 30% the speed of light, that means to slow you down, you need something with an exit velocity, 30% the speed of light, which is why you're using laser in the first place. If conventional thrusters would work, you would do that. And it's not a matter of like, even, even if you're doing like, like if you say, oh, an ion thruster, an ion thruster still is kicking fuel out there. And you can do the math to figure out, like, if I have, you know, five, five grams of argon or whatever xenon that I'm kicking out there, guess what? You're not even in a tenth of a percentage of what you're going to need. And even at solar, it's just you're using all this energy putting pushed in there. So that won't work. Uh, but then, like you said, if you have one array that's sort of like the, the you know, the, the you go first and then you're going to kick us back and then we're going to lose you into eternity. Um, that's what you kind of need to do. Or and, and I was showing you some papers on using, you know, uh, magneto breaking using because there's magnetic fields and, the, you know, there's solar, solar magnetic fields, galactic magnetic fields. That's another way to generate energy or something like this. So there's. Yeah, Phil, Phil's got an upcoming paper that actually touches on that. So. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned because then you, yeah, and then you're like, you talk to Phil, and Phil said Phil's working on that, which yeah. is already that was awesome. So th thanks to all of you in the chat room for coming up with these ideas. Uh, it's really great that you're invested and interested in all this stuff. Um, but yeah, there's some things are just you're limited by the mm -hmm. physics of how things work. Now there is another exciting kind of aspect of this, and that is that in, when they start doing the math on this, the idea is we shoot a laser beam. We hit the mirror, mirror deflects it and can, takes the momentum. What if the mirror, and this is, you showed me examples, what if the mirror reflects the light back to another mirror and you're able to recoup that? So um, this is an idea that Phil called photon recycling. And the, it, it's a pretty simple one. You it's just very green. Of, it's very green. <laughs> of course. Um, the laser would probably be infrared, so you wouldn't be able to see it. But yeah, we'll call it green. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the idea is that uh, you have one one mirror in place, um, you're shooting your laser at it and you can push it. But if you have a second mirror in place, you create a cavity where the light can actually, I need a third hand here, but you, you're, it would bounce between the <laughs> and bounce between the two and you actually get a lot more acceleration. And we did this experiment in the lab, incredibly crude, um, really quite ghetto. That was with uh, the, like, the workbench, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we were able to get a factor of 10x improvement just from uh, incredibly basic setup it could easily go up to a factor of 100x improvement. So at that rate of improvement, that means it would have pushed something to 30% the speed of light if you're getting a 10x because of the way, of course, the more oh, energy you put in. Also, small point, that was a high school student that worked on that project. Yeah, yeah. high school students. <laughs> high school students. If you're able then, if you're able to use this in theory and practice, that 30% comes closer to 90, 95% or whatever based upon, you know, the, yeah. the, the reason I bring up that a high school student worked on it is that um, the way that the lab is structured is such that anyone can, like, um, people of any skill level can be involved and contribute in a meaningful way. And we now have this data that shows, like, look, the photon recycling works. Talk So talk about, you, Jonathan just graduated, by the way, congratulations, his degree is in electrical engineering. Thank you. How did you, and so you're an electrical engineer working on space propulsion and all these, how did that happen? That happened because, okay, first of all, I'd heard of Phil's lab, um, and I tried giving lab to her, but the person who uh, flicked out on me, um, <laughs> and then I had a, a buddy of mine who offered me research, and I was like, I've been wanting to get into research, and then I found out he was in Phil's lab, he gave me a lab tour, and I was like, I'm totally sold, I want to get involved in this however I can, um, and it, it started out with like, um, a project where I had to make a multi-physics simulation of a laser hitting a rotating asteroid using a program called Comsol Multiphysics. I had no experience with any of this stuff. This is like every, every word in that sentence was completely new to me at the time. Like me right now, going okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's I remember that too when I was, this, didn't like know what that breakout. was. <laughs> Um, no. So it's, I, I sat down with one of the researchers, we, we analyzed the problem, um, we looked at it, and we solved this um, issue that had been unsolved for two years in the lab. 
Um, and so that was sort of my first foray into this sort of stuff. And from there, it kind of grew to the point where, like, I was one of the more senior people in the lab, started, like, um, explaining projects to other people. Um, I had a couple of interns myself. So, yeah. So uh, a question came up there, which it sounds like the intuitive answer is no, but actually it's not the case, was maneuverability. And I remember yeah. what Nick was showing me, what he was looking at, at using the, the control thrusters. Okay, so we've had several ideas for like, okay, um, once you've sent the spacecraft out, you don't have very, you have little to no control over it. And so if you want to do any fine positioning after you've left Earth, it's got to be from an onboard source of thrust. Um, so what we've looked at is like, you know, ion, ion thrusters, um, a couple more exotic type of, types of technologies. But one idea was like, why not just use photon propulsion? Like we've got this technology, why not try using it in this application? And so the idea is if you have your, just keep using this mid container as our spacecraft. Yeah. So you just have a laser on board and you just kind of like, pew, 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 pew. and then if you shoot off on this corner, you'll rotate this way. And yeah, it's it's not gonna get you like, like maneuverability that you would see with, you know, you would understand in like, you know, the normal time frames. But when something's taking 15 years to get there or whatever over time, it's a slight enough gradual. It can make a little bit of deflection to help get some fine tuning. Because if you're getting towards, let's say you get toward an office Centauri and you start to, and you can have sensors giving back data too. You can get some data back and you have a mesh network. So it doesn't have to be a lot of data. And if you're like, wow, there's a gaseous giant here, whatever, maybe we can slightly tune the orbit to that. You're not not going to be able to do like orbital, you can orbital insertions, whatever. You know, what would this even get orbit? You might be able to tune the flyby. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can tweak the flyby, but you won't be able to like position yourself into orbit or anything no. like that. Now, with that, with, with, with that kind of adjustment, you would have would you have to adjust the the laser propulsion to it, or, or once it's going, it's it's already gone. So again, with the base case, um, you would only be accelerating it for about ten minutes, and gotcha. then it's like, it's and then on. it's off. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what, which actually creates a very interesting problem because that thing is going so fast that you can't communicate with it in real time. So, because you know, you're talking about something going almost the speed of light. So it's going, if you're sending a light signal to it, it'll take order of years to get there. And what that means is that that spacecraft has to be independently um, autonomous. It needs to be able to make its own decisions because you can't be telling it, turn left, turn right, you know, turn on your, heat heater turn off your cooling system it's got to be able to figure all this stuff out for itself so uh one part of our lab is uh, and we've been talking to google about this is adding ai to the spacecraft so that it can and remind remember that this would be a swarm of spacecraft so have ai where they're actually talking to each other so one of the spacecraft in the swarm could say Hey, I just found this interesting like rock over here. Like, can I just missed it? Can you other guys take a picture of it? That's kind of cool too. Is that when you're talking about thousands of thousands of objects in your swarm, you don't need to have big you know, multi-megapixel sensors. You get each part of it gets a little enough of a sensor. And also, what you're getting too, which is fascinating, is that because the array would be ideally very, very, very spread out and you're getting all of that image information, you can get really incredibly detailed sort, even more so than if you had one really powerful camera right here, like yeah. like we do with space telescopes right now. Yeah, you notice with telescopes, they always, every astronomer wants a bigger telescope. That's just how it works. Bigger yeah. telescope, better image. Um, so if you have this huge array in space spread out, it's like an astronomer's dream, yeah. come, dream yeah. come true. And you could you could control the spread of these things where you could start putting things sitting towards there. You could build a telescope, you know, that continually you know has an array bigger than the moon, you know, of these objects flying towards Alpha Centauri. So yeah, as you're going there, you're gonna get an incredible amount of information, positional information, all this sort of stuff, depth data, all that. And we we can figure out now what you know, we can build a prototype for what these things are, mm -hmm. you know. So. How, how far how far off is this? Okay, uh, so Phil's the title of Phil's paper is a roadmap to interstellar flight, and that's what it is right now. It's a roadmap. Um, we're building prototypes in the lab, proving these like various technological steps that we need to take in order to make this a reality. 
Uh, we're planning a CubeSat mission, which a CubeSat's a little 10 by 10 by 10 centimeter cube uh, that can uh, is fairly inexpensive to launch. Um, I'd say to, the answer to your question is it's um, it's within our lifetime. It'll be several decades, um, but it's it's steps. There's milestones to get there. So there'll be exciting news to share along the way. And, it, and it's, it's, I would say that the time frame is if Elon Musk didn't wake up one day and decide to create SpaceX, you know, our time frame to the reusability of rockets where we are could be 10 to 15 years away. Because I think, I think SpaceX accelerated Blue Origin. I think the Blue Origin stepped up the pace in what they were trying to do. And I think that we're 10 years closer to where we would have been, 10 or 15 years closer to where we would because the beauty of a market is that somebody else is able to enter in as a player. And the roadmap, if it's purely NASA, purely Project Starshot, is it? But if Jeff Bezos, if a guy like Jeff Bezos comes along and says, I'm super passionate about this, so I want to make this thing happen, we could be much faster. It could happen much more quickly. In, in, yeah, make make the money rain and stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is, there is in, you know, there's... Sure. Starshot, there's a lot of like, hey, when you have all these different groups working on it, and it can be good, but it can also... It's like, think of the Human Genome Project. The Human Genome Project, this, this, and I think in some ways could be the, is sort of the space propulsion kind of equivalency of that, is that we know what, we now we know what the next version, people are like, like, how do we get away from chemical rockets? This is probably it, unless there's some other exotic idea out there we're not aware of. It's using lasers and it's using getting, getting rid of the fuel entirely and just using the pure energy, directed energy for doing that, which means lasers for the most part. So... Project, the Human Genome Project started in the, proposed in the 80s and started in the 90s, and it was this idea of let's try to map the entire human genome and figure out where all the genes are and kind of like maybe what they did, okay? And they used, the National Institutes of Health had academic institutions and, you know, business institutions around the world contract were part of this project. Part of this project to try to map this out, it was going to take over like a decade to go do this. And they had to map how long they thought it would take to do it using conventional technology in the day. A little, you know, a year or two into this, Craig Venter, who was a scientist working on this project, had been looking up different ways of mapping your genes, and he realized that there was a technique which had been proposed about 10 years before, which was the shotgun approach, which was the idea of you take a piece of DNA, and instead of like just kind of like going from one end of it to the other and trying to sequence in along the way like a paper tape, if you just shot it through a little sieve and you sieve, wherever you're from, and you cut it into smaller pieces, you could then actually scan all those individual pieces and have a supercomputer go back and say, it has, it's like taking 100, different, 100, 100 jigsaw puzzles of the same puzzle, mixing the pieces up together. A computer will figure out super quick where the pieces go and what they are. And so he said, why don't we use this shotgun approach in a supercomputer now, because it was super, it was much, much cheaper now. Why don't we just scatter in that? And he says, you know, we could probably do this in like a third of the time. We could do this much faster. It's faster approach towards doing it. Proposed it to the the you know the the government and the people running the human genome project. They're like, no, we like this. We're funded. We funded this. We're funded for ten years. It complicates things. We don't need to do that. Inventor's approach is like, you know, we're trying to map the human genome because we want to like cure cancer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we're trying to save lives. And yes, it's great that the way the program is, the institution is has this plan, this roadmap to do it. But here's this better way that we just figured out how to do this. If we go through the pain of changing and, and calling people up and hold a conference, say, listen, we want to go this approach, we would be done five years sooner and be five years closer to the future of where we're working on. You know, right now, you know, where we'd be closer to the future, where we'd be able to work on these therapies and solving, you know, some of these. And we already have treatments based upon the results of this. Like, no, 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 we're not going to. Venture's like, all right, went and started a startup created a startup company, Seller Genomics. They said, you know what? We're going to be using the shotgun approach, doing this thing, because we think this data is used for treating diseases. We think there's a business model there. And that's when they started mapping the, gene, the sequence on their own. And there was, this, there was this one repository of like the gene bank where people were uploading, like, this is the data. And his company was fat, was uploading at a faster rate than everybody else combined. Yes. <laughs> and it was like, and they're like, and they're like, yeah, no, we're going to be done by like, you know, 1999 or eight or forget the year, the point, I forget the year when they said, we're going to be done by then. We're going to beat you, you know? And then the government was like, let's have a tie. <laughs> and so it went from, no, we're not going to do this to this, this wonderful photo with, with Craig Venter and the head of the program shaking hands, cutting a ribbon, announcing, yay, we won together. 
and it was because an outside company, which yeah. wasn't encumbered with the bureaucracy, the, the scientists working this project, the NIH, are brilliant, amazing, even the people running it, amazing, but they're stuck in that one way to do it. And that's an example of a private company came in and accelerated and brought us closer to the future. SpaceX is an example of that. Should Bezos and Blue Origin or somebody else say, yeah, you know what? Let's hire, you know, a thousand of the best laser physicists and other people like this. Let's put, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars a year into this and scale it up to like a billion a year, which I think is what Bezos is doing for Blue Origin. We could be seen by the end of the next decade, probably getting to human scale spacecraft, human scale spacecraft being, you know, testing stuff at that level. That's that's doable because like SpaceX, NIH with, you know, the Celadromics, the tech is here. It's just a matter of vision and money. It's a matter, yeah, it's a matter of doing it. Yeah. And and that's yeah. that's the key is that I, I feel like we're still in, we're still kind of, we're getting very, very close to the corner, but we're still on the other side of it when it comes to that those kinds of space projects. Because, yes, we know that these uh, rockets are going up. Yes, we know that these SpaceX rockets and the Blue Origin rockets are cheaper than what we would do before. But we are just at the beginning. We are just at the infancy of seeing the full potential of of what those ramifications are. And that's where I think it's like, all right, well, now I can get something. I can go on, you know, <laughs> I, can, I can go on the SpaceX web portal and book my uh, uh, trip and, and it'll print out a UPS uh, sticker that I can just stick on what I need to go up into space, have that be picked up. And now... What now? Literally, the, the we we have the rest of uh, the cosmos as our possibilities as to what to do with it. See, I, I'm reminded of steampunk because you know the future is always imagined as an extrapolation of the present. Yeah, yeah. We we try to map the present and the future when it's very different. And I my belief, this is my personal belief, we're one Zuckerberg, Larry Page, uh, Bezos away from somebody going. You know what? I like what SpaceX is doing. I'm not going to compete with well, we will accept from Bezos with them in that area. I'm going to work on what the next phase is because I see a business case in 10 years' time. Whatever. We're one person away from that happening. I think it a really scale thing, and it takes it takes a large scale funding to do this. But the beauty of it is is that it is a a the math is there, the engineering is there. If you want to build your business case, what you're going to do, but you you get into the idea that. Before, you know, before the middle of the century is that, you know, hop in your loop to get to your local Hyperloop, hop to the Hyperloop station to get to your next loop to get your Blue Origin or SpaceX launch facility. You hop in a craft there, you book your flight, like you just book it like in your, pull out your web app, book your flight. Next thing you know, you're at a low Earth orbit station where you then hop on board something the size of a small, you know, SUV, get kicked into the array, array takes you to Mars orbit and you're there and you could get from your front door to Mars in 12 hours using yeah. technology that exists right now. You could get your, you know, going to Alcantara is a little bit different, but you know, you're, you're, you're ta still talking, you know, years, you're not going to be able to get there faster than three and a half years, but like within their solar system, you could be talking hours and days based on technology that exists right now. Just scale. Really big. Yeah. Yeah. Tell you what, very exciting times. We are at about an hour. Do you want to want to do picks? Let's do picks. So, Jonathan, this is where we pick some of our favorite, favorite movies, books, whatever we've been reading or consuming, you know, and uh, share it with everybody else. I'll let well, Jonathan. You can think of one. Well, you know, Justin here spouts one out. Sure, you got one. I do. So, I'm working on this history podcast, and I've been loath to listen to other history podcasts because I didn't want to be affected by them. I, I wanted to try and, and build my own thing. And then I kind of hit a lull. We had a conversation about that last night. I kind of hit a lull and, uh, in, in my motivation and got caught up in a couple other things. We had the tour, and so I was just kind of like, Look for something to kind of get me motivated. And so I broke the glass on something that I had not listened to yet, but was by far the number one thing that people would talk to me about whenever I mentioned that I was doing a history podcast in the vein that I want to do it. And uh, it is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Uh, uh, so I'm listening to his King of Kings trilogy. If you're unfamiliar with Hardcore History... It is a monologue. Imagine a 
very resonant voiced, uh, uh, popular culture literate history dissertation. Uh, uh, certainly more along the lines of uh, fascinations with empire building and storytelling and ancient history gathering, a lot of war crafting, uh, but it's exceptional. I mean, there's a reason why he, Dan Carlin, is kind of the, the standard bearer in this uh, field, but I would, uh, I would highly recommend it as a, a million other people uh, have, have done, and, and you, can, you can understand why he is, he is the goat of that field. I keep hearing his this thing come up and people talk about him and I'm like, Meh, you know, how much does this guy really know? And it's just one because sometimes you get a lot of these podcasts and shows like, oh, great. You read Wikipedia and then some Howard Zim, you know, and now you're giving us this thing that's sort of not true. Yeah. And, and very politicized. That was always my fear. But I keep hearing very good things about him. No, this is his primary source for which he talks a lot about not only his motivation, but also him himself is uh, uh Oh, God, I can't even remember. But it, it, it's one of the ancient Greek uh, storytellers, and he talks not only about him as a primary source, but also where kind of history evolved previously, that, like, the dry nature of how a history was told. Like, uh, the king, uh, you know, the king is here. The king met with the advisor for the rival kingdom. The king killed the rival king. Now he is the king of blank, right? And where our, our history kind of evolves from there. Effectively, the king of kings sort of orbits around one of the most famous historical uh, uh, moments in, in history that's been retold a million times, the Battle of uh, Thermopylae, a.k.a. the 300 story that we saw from the movie and the, and the Frank Miller graphic novel. But, man, it is not... I, I, I share your... Uh, 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 skepticism of history podcast, Andrew, <laughs> largely because we probably have some of the same taste on it, where it's like uh, there are podcasts that I will not name that I've listened to, uh, specifically in the political sphere, which is where I'm going to be entering into. And it's like, look, you exactly. You, you read Wikipedia. You're going on already very hardened and established narratives. And you talk to three professors and two reporters that were around these things, and now you're just basically going to reheat this old dinner and pretend like it's a feast. Dan Carlin, <laughs> if if you... There's one thing that no matter what, nobody could ever take away from that dude, and that is he did the work! And there's a lot of really, really cool stuff, specifically when it comes to armies and and war, and you know Warcraft and diplomacy, and it's, it's fantastic. Go take a look. I'm excited. To, I'm, I'm very glad. To hear that. I, I like uh, I like deep dives into that stuff. And, and I and my my bias is because of like so much of just the, the you, you get that. I don't want to call it the uh, Da Vinci Code sort of approach like, oh, you heard this thing. And it's like there's and it's like you're like there's not an original thing in what you just said. And it left out a lot of context because it shapes some sort of narrative you're trying to push. You and know, that gets frustrating. And that's and that's the thing is that part of it there is a worth to reheating uh, uh, the old dinner, right? Like as as we all you have to do is go to the the today I learned section of Reddit, uh, and old people like Andrew and I can uh, uh, go and be like, oh really? Wait, you didn't know? Like yeah, Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States, and he used to be an actor. Like he was an actor. Yeah, that's crazy. Like. So I think that there is a worth because there's, you know, listen, uh, time moves on and, and there's, a, a, you know, a, a worth in highlighting old things. But I do think that ultimately to preserve the fidelity, there is a lot of kind of craft that can go into it. And Dan Carlin's a great example. I'm going to let John and the answer is, well, I'm going to run and go get a prop. All right, go. Okay. So um, I don't spend too much time reading books or consuming other things aside from textbooks. Uh, yeah. But recently um, I've been listening to an audio book on negotiating called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And he talks, he was um, a negotiator for the FBI for uh, hostage crisis situations. And so he talks about how when you're in a negotiation and you're negotiating for the life of a hostage, there is no middle ground. Like yeah. you get the guy back or you don't. There's, you, you can't be splitting the difference with these guys. And he talks about various techniques and 
gives some incredible stories about how he brought these people home. Uh, that book, uh, my wife read because she is in a, a business field where there is often a lot of negotiation and that, uh, was very, 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 very popular. And she has uh, recommended that I read it. So I'm excited to hear that you, that you dug it. Uh, yeah. is there, is there any big lesson, any, anything that kind of stuck with you specifically, uh, uh, with that book? Um, yeah, you can't ignore the emotional side of people in a negotiation. Like it, yes, it's about the brass tacks and the numbers and all of that, but at the root of it, you have to make a connection with the other person. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that is, and it's uh, so often forgotten when you kind of look at the like, well, well, you had this and they had blank. Like, how can that possibly happen? My pick is, uh, you know, I had to go, uh, do a lot of traveling for the Discovery Channel for the Shark Week special that I shot. And then uh, I was just on set helping my friend Roshni and John was there too, helping her with their student film and needing to you know run around, fix things, do things, whatever. And I'm always trying to figure out like, how do I do, you know, what what's the minimal amount of tools I need to keep with me? Because otherwise you get tool bloat. And particularly when you travel, you can't bring every tool in the world. And so I'm always trying to figure out how to consolidate. I'm always looking at like what do other people use? Like I have on my keychain, I keep one of the, one of these, yeah. right? Which is you know a wonderful little multi-tool. John, yeah. and I've got one of these inside my wallet. Yeah. I, if I could fit one of those, I have several of those. But if I could fit so, one but, in my but, wallet, uh, I would. But, this but is got, just re, re, yeah, real quick for the primarily audio listenership. Uh, yeah. They are holding up a utility key and a, a business card uh, utility. Uh, wallet ninja. Wallet, wallet yeah. Ninja. There there's, the, there's Wallet Monkeys. Yeah, my utility key's got a knife. It's got the saw blade. It's got a Phillips. It's got all these tools on there. So I always have that on there. And one of the pro- my biggest problems is remembering, oh, yeah, I have this tool on me. But uh, when it comes to my toolkit, I wanted something else. I needed, you know, drilling things, you know, screwdriving, all that, you know, was always like, what's the right thing to carry with me? And the problem you get into is the charger situation. And then I came across uh, this thing, which is a conventional sort of driver, right? It's got okay. the screwdriver. You can put whatever at the tip there. You want to do that. There are two things I love about this one. A lot of tools do this now, which is great. But if you're looking for a multi-purpose tool is one, it charges via USB. So there is a USB oh, great. there. So instead of having to carry around a specialty eight volt, 12 volt, whatever charger, I throw this into my bag. Maybe there's, I don't even know if there's a USB charger in there, but I know I can find a USB charger, right? So yeah. this is, yeah, this one's a Black & Decker. It's, just, it's a cheap, it's, you know, it's a $20, $25 tool. What's great about this, too, is it's got the USB charger on the back. This has this other function where it swivels around and it becomes a hand grip. Oh, so all of a sudden, great. if I want to do a drill, if I want to use it as a drill, I can do it that. So it becomes, it goes from, uh, for audio listeners, it goes from being just a straight uh, cylinder to... It's in a cylinder mode, which is sort of like the conventional screw. If I need to just twist it, hand torque it, I can do that. You activate the thing on the side there, and you swivel around, and now it has a hand grip, and now it's a hand drill. Well, not a hand drill, but a handheld drill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drill. No, that's that's great. That 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 that's amazing because charging those sons of bees are just the worst. Yeah, and it can do some other attachments on there too. But it's well, just and become- also it just, it just takes it it really takes advantage of the fact that look, I think we all live in a digital age where we've got a million things to charge many nightly. Right. And, and we all have our little garden of cables where we can plug in uh, a, a various you know, different stuff. Uh, the fact that you can take advantage of that. If I have that now, I'm not worried about whether or not I have batteries, I'm not worried not whether or not I have the specific charger that it needs to sit on for 14 hours. I can just plug it into the thing where I'm already charging batteries. It's got a little magnetic catch on the top, too. So if you're switching between drill bits, things like this, you can put one into the top. And again, it's like I got this, I think, at Lowe's or whatever. It was like 20 30 bucks, something cheap, you know, comparatively. There are way better ways, to, way, there are better tools you can spend a lot more money on. But for a really, and I, I buy, I'll buy, I just sometimes buy cheaper ones. Like, why do you do that? Because, like, I leave them everywhere. I keep one in my car. I keep it everywhere. So instead of it having my special tool set, I have this, so I always know I'm going to have something yeah. here or there. So I, I think it, this would, was, it would be it yeah. would be different if you had like a workshop or something like like a big yeah. dedicated. Oh, yeah. That space. would be yeah. There's yeah. there's I have like I have a toolbox here with my preferred tools and stuff, but for my my you know my grab bag of kit of tools things Hell like this. Oh yeah. And you know which is filled with zip ties, gaffers tape, and you know random screws, and it was helpful because I just you know 
we had multiple times like I need this. I'm like, I think I have it in this bag and we have it. So there you go. Um, awesome. Well, I pivot, think what's it called? The pivot dribble, the pivot driver. So cool. I think that's what it's called. So anyhow, I was just, it's been very, very handy and very useful. Awesome. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming here and sharing with us what's going on at that. Uh, you know, uh, congratulations on graduating. Congratulations on what you're working on next. And uh, we'll have to bring you in at some point and tell us what you can't tell us about that. Thanks. All right. So uh, very excited about what's been going on there. So uh, listen, everybody. Yeah. Hey, John, I mean, do you have a, a, a Twitter or any social media that where people can follow you? Um, nope. I am very much offline, especially since I'm going to be working at a secret government facility soon. So, <laughs> no, nope, you won't. Be well, then I'll tell you what. This is all you get. <laughs> You jackals! <laughs> Nothing for free. I'm kidding. That's legit. What's going on? I'm not. Now, so. I, I don't. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't doubt it. Uh, uh, yeah, having having yeah. a little bit of knowledge of what he's into. That is that is great. Yeah. So there you go. That's all the Jonathan you you you, you have, folks. So it's been weird. The Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program.